This episode is brought to you by VinSmart. Need help with your recall campaigns? DMVs, government agencies, fleet owners can learn more by visiting vinsmart.com slash businesses or call 1-888-950-9550. Welcome to AmbaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Amva community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the AmbaCast. Uh, this week, we are going to meet and get to know a uh, new partner that's starting to talk to some of our members and part of our community, uh, very relevant to some uh, current topics that our members have been discussing and the larger conversation that many of us are engaged in around equity and inclusion. So specifically, I want to welcome to the Amvacast, Gordon Goodwin. Gordon is the director of the Government Alliance on Race and Equity at Race Forward. Gordon, welcome to your first appearance on the Amvacast and introduction to the Amva community. Ian, thank you so very much for that warm welcome and introduction. I'm glad to be here with you. So, since you are um, new to most of our listeners, um, I really want to start at, at the very beginning, if I could, and ask you to tell us uh, at a high level, I'm sure you've got hours and hours of presentations on your program, but you know we, we only have so much time together. So talk to us, tell us about the basics. The, the Government Alliance on Race and Equity um, is, a, is a specific program at Race Forward. So first, tell us what is Race Forward, and then what is this program that I guess we refer to as GARE? Would that be the right pronunciation of the acronym? That would be it, not to be confused with a French train station. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yes, there you go, as long as we're talking about transportation. Excellent. Uh, Race Forward is one of the nation's uh, preeminent racial justice organizations, Hmm. and Race Forward is really focused on creating a democracy and institutions that allow all of us uh, to fully participate um, in our society. Um, And we focus on race because we know that race is one of the frontiers of our American society uh, that has defined uh, how we are a nation today. And that's still an area that needs significant focus because race still plays a significant role in how well mm-hmm. we do in American society. As much as we would not like that to be the case, yeah. it's still the case. Yes. And so the the program specifically that you're responsible for, the Government Alliance on, on Race and Equity, um, the specific mission or role of that program within the, the broader context of the organization? Right. So GARE is actually a program that is focused on racial equity practitioners who are working in government. And so we are about supporting a network of leaders and doers who are working within local government to ensure that government actually lives up to um, being of the people, by the people, and for all of the people. Uh, We are dedicated to transforming governments, creating change from within to create a racially just and equitable society. And so when you say you work with with governments, and I think you use the phrase local governments, but I'd imagine it's really any level of government from from a town or a county up to a state government. 
yes, we work with state departments, we work with counties, we work with a lot of municipalities, and we also have uh, some other types of entities. So individual, um, uh, I'd say MPOs, municipal mm-hmm. planning organizations, mm-hmm. special taxing districts. Um, we have membership available for individual departments within larger uh, uh, governmental units. And sometimes that includes, uh, let's say, court systems and park systems, mm-hmm. uh, prosecutor's offices. So, yeah, we're open to all local government. And recently, uh, we launched a program within Race Forward that is going to be focusing on federal agencies. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so that's a very recent development it is a side-by-side effort uh, with GARE, the Government Alliance on Race and Equity, and uh, it's really just getting started. Yeah. So knowing that most of our members um, and therefore our listeners are connected at either the, the state level government in the U.S. or the provincial uh, level of government in Canada, mm-hmm. when you talk about working with those levels of government, what what does that that mean? Are you are you coaching them on how to have workforce development? Are you helping them with audits of diversity and inclusion? What's the actual work that's being done? So, in order to do the work of racial equity, which is really about how we get to a level of results, ways that people's lives are better off, regardless of their race, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have to do a couple of things. Number one. Even having a conversation about race and understanding why we need to do that and have that go beyond just sort of our individual differences in how we look or culture, we've got to understand that foundational institutions and government key among those foundational institutions, the institutions that we've relied upon to have a society, actually played a significant role in enforcing laws that created separatism by race. So when we think about, you know, why is it that in many cases, uh, black and brown families have eight, sometimes 10 times less family wealth than many white families do, which is not to say that there aren't um, some low-income white families. But when you see that disproportionality, you know, we may represent, uh, let's say, African-Americans in the United States, 13 to 14 percent of the population. But uh, maybe when you take a look at the poverty rankings and low income rankings, pretty much double that. Um, the reason you see those types of results is because there were actions taken by government and supported by society to keep people from participating in professions owning property, um, at the early stages of our country, becoming citizens, being able to vote, really being able to fully participate in the economy, civic space, um, all aspects of our society. Now we've come through a time where we've seen some significant changes driven by movements to the civil rights movements, movements for rights for all people that have changed those laws. But the reality of the situation is, let's say, take the housing expansion. The single largest housing expansion in the United States 
for private home ownership took place right after World War II. And one of the preeminent entities, you know, for underwriting mortgages, FHA, actually created the redlining standard. And combined, you combine that with the banking uh, prohibitions of, against making loans to people of color and other actions that were taken um, to prevent families of color, in particular black families from owning property. And you'll see that that generational appreciation in wealth simply didn't occur for as many um, communities of color. And so we also know that when you take a look at home ownership, that represents sometimes up to 50, 60, 70% of family wealth. But you can even go back further than that. So the history of our country has had a number of challenges around race and land ownership. And we have to acknowledge that the land that both Canada and the United States is on is native land. It was first occupied by the Native Americans, and we've broken over 500 treaties in the U.S., right, um, around how we would coexist on that land and what land would be theirs. Essentially, we took it whenever it suited our purposes. So when you think about large-scale land ownership, like my mom's from Oklahoma, think about the Oklahoma land rush, well, you know, the Oklahoma land rush and other types of openings of the territories uh, that were open largely to white families were typically not open to black uh, and brown families. So that's, you know, we know that today there are significant property holdings and earnings and wealth that came out of that action, which actually excluded people based upon their race. And that, Ian, is one of the reasons that when we're talking about inequality, we really do need to be specific about race and about the actions that created racial inequities, because we know that there were very specific and direct actions. These were deliberate actions taken to ensure that black and brown people and indigenous people would not participate in society. Uh, and the economy and education, all these other aspects that we think are important for having a good life. So we can't now say that, well, we should just say maybe focus on economic inequality uh, because we know that part of that economic inequality was essentially created by racial inequality that was created not out of some natural system, but out of a legalized structure that was supported uh, supported by government. So I'm curious, when you look at those, the history of uh, government and policies, you know, the solid examples of, you know, housing and banking you provided, being that, you know, we're in the motor vehicle administration world, I'm curious, has your analysis looked at the history of transportation, transportation policies, access to transportation? Uh, right now, the transportation community, equitable access to transportation is a huge hot topic, um, which I want to ask you about, but I'm curious on the history side first, as you look at those those barriers that have existed over, over centuries, um, if your organization's analysis into the history of 
transportation policy, for lack of a better phrase, has contributed all and been a part of that conversation? It certainly has. I mean, we can't. And so when we talk about transportation policy, one of the things we need to think about also is uh, just the policy of investments, public investment, um, and how that's generally not followed communities of color. So when you take a look at our urban landscape, when you take a look at sort of our metropolitan landscape, and you start thinking about, you know, where were there going to be concentrations of transportation uh, capacity and infrastructure, a lot of times that would be at the central city. But when you started taking a look at which roads were paved last, right, it was usually sort of in the pockets and areas that were a little less desirable, which is out of the consequence of not being able to have house, have black and brown people living in white neighborhoods, usually downstream or downriver from some of our more industrial locations. A lot of these places were existing a little bit like colonias, right? And so if you're familiar with the South Texas example of um, neighborhoods of Mexican American people living in some cases across a state highway from an incorporated community and an incorporated community not extending, because this has to do with annexation, right? If you're going to have a water system extended, then you're probably going to have to go through some type of annexation process. Well, from a racial exclusion perspective, water's not extended. This also took place in other parts of the country. Roads were not extended. No services were extended, even though people were paying taxes generally to governments. And so that played a very significant role in whether or not you had sewer drains, right? Because think about this. You're not just going to put storm sewer just anywhere, right? I mean, essentially, you have people living in circumstances that are unincorporated, um, don't have full services. If you don't have the roads, you're probably not going to also have the full electrical extension. You're not going to have uh, the storm sewer. You may not actually even, you may still be on drainage field, you know, and that's what was happening in large parts of our American landscape is that low income communities also didn't receive the level of investment needed, the basic level of investment needed for sidewalks and streets for public right of way that would then be able to make it possible for more bus service and to actually have even more private car service. Mm. And that is part of the history of our country. So those practices and policies have had significant impact. And the thing to think about now, of course, is um, when you see that there's a movement back to the cities, and some areas being rediscovered, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, it becomes a glaring contradiction about 
well, why is it that we couldn't actually make loans to the people who were there, or why couldn't we do the improvements on a more regular basis? Mm -hmm. um, so that in many, many ways, the investment is following white people, largely white people, back into the cities, um, money following money, right? The best way to yeah. make the... Well, earlier on in my career, I was doing some work with lending, but more with public monies. And I learned from, from bankers that the easiest way to make a career was to lend money to people who didn't need it, um, <laughs> right? Uh, because you knew they were going to repay it. And um, it was a very, very low risk. And making, making loans that required a little bit more work, more belief, uh, more underwriting, which in many cases would be in communities where somebody has not had a loan history. Well, you know, you can take your time to do that. And this is how it's structural racism works, right? You could take your more time to do that, but you've still got a loan goal you've got to make. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, congratulations. You did, you spent all that time making this loan, doing a good thing, but you maybe won't make your quota. That is part of the pernicious and persistent uh, work of racial inequity and structural racism that sometimes people are making choices about every day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, part of the challenge. And so we, we've also seen in our community, um, you know, playing out some of those examples you gave around transportation investment, we've seen those results, unfortunately, in uh, traffic safety statistics, that um, traffic fatalities, you know, especially, say, pedestrian fatalities, uh, might, be, um, might be impacting a disproportionate amount of those minority communities, people of color, um, that are impacted by those safety trends more so than it would be equitably distributed based on population. Um, and I think part of part of that could be tying back to those initial infrastructure investments that you were mentioning earlier. Um, I, I don't know if that has come up in any of your conversations or hit your radar on how that you know still plays out today with those disproportional impacts. Yeah, you know, I think this is this is quite topical actually because I believe maybe this program is still going on, but there was a safe streets program. Yes, um, right. So we're we're on the same page, right? Which was really uh, supposed to be focused on those communities where the public right of way and the intersection of pedestrian traffic and bicycle traffic and major streets, that's what was really supposed to be the focus of that program. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, some jurisdictions looked at it as an opportunity to double down on the central business district uh, and to not really allocate those monies where there might be, where the data indicates we really need to put that. Um, but there are some other issues that came up with that program because sometimes the analysis came down to What's wrong with the people, right? So you take an example of, and this is happening in a lot of urban areas, where the urban core has now become too expensive to live in. Mm -hmm. People who are working people, uh, maybe have more than one job, are now living in a first-tier suburb mm -hmm. off of a, I'm just going to say, something that's almost the size of a U.S. highway. I 
I used to be an urban planner, but I, I wasn't a transportation planner, so I can't remember what A, B, C class arterial means anymore. Yeah. But it's, let's say, a six-lane highway that has bus service, but it's on a pod that you have to go across six lanes of traffic to get to yeah. with no um, uh, grassy sort of boulevard as sort of a safety piece and no bridge, right? Mm -hmm. No pedestrian bridge. Mm -hmm. There's simply, at the time that many of our first tier suburbs were being developed, the assumption was that you would have a car. You know, you wouldn't yeah. be trying to cross six lanes of traffic. Yeah. Um, you know, looking at the bridge, well, maybe that's a little bit too much to put in for pedestrians. Why would we be doing that? Everything that people need is on this side of the street. So you've got everybody from kindergartners with their mother or father to people who are trying to make shift work get onto a bus that has is probably not a direct bus, although we know that most job growth is taking place in suburban areas, right? Mm -hmm. Significant amounts of job growth there. A lot of our hub and spoke systems for transportation are sort of set up to go from, you know, central city out to mm -hmm. a suburb, and then you've got to take an arterial branch. And unless you've got a special transportation system, and what's really interesting is to see these new types of bus systems um, that have, you know, really, really nice accommodations, but are in some ways sponsored by large-scale employers going from one suburb to the next. This also happens a lot in the Bay Area, provided directly by major um, employers. You know, your bus trip could be 45, 50, 65 minutes long. That's in good weather. I'm speaking mm -hmm. to you from St. Paul, Minnesota, by the way. So we know a little something about bad weather. So some about weather. There we go. <laughs> and, which could be up to two hours. And yeah. God help us if there's a breakdown, right? So yeah. people, you know, just even getting to... There's the fact that our systems and structures, our entire infrastructure was not necessarily set up to get people to where they need to be. It was very car centric. And then when we have the opportunity to actually begin to apply these monies to really significantly positively impact the lives of people who need those additional resources, like the bridge to get across the six lane road. Uh, sometimes we are passing up on that and doubling down on putting that investment in areas that don't need, don't quite frankly need it. How much of that money actually went to bike lanes, right? Mm -hmm. In major urban areas, not to say that I have anything against bike lanes, but how much of that is going already to bike lanes um, to connect more wealthy areas to other conveniences in the downtown. Mm -hmm. And while we still have the challenge of people being, you know, hit by traffic at night and in bad weather or just during rush hour, simply trying to get across the street to a bus. And we Absolutely. haven't faced the whole bus situation. So, yes, that is clearly a challenge. And the challenge is not why can't the people cross the street? <laughs> Don't they have enough sense to, do, you know, to cross it well? The challenge is the street is not accommodating to being mm -hmm. bus. Right. And uh, the transportation is not coming to their door. It's not coming yeah. to it's a whole bunch of different changes there. And all of those systems, the bus system, the 
trans the system in public works that designates whether or not a bridge is needed, the money allocation system that is essentially looking at some of the communities that really need the money as being not as important um, or maybe as maybe not being able to have that money uh, appear to be useful, right? When mm -hmm. you can concentrate the money in other areas where there already is investment, those are choices that yeah. we, the professionals make and that are endorsed in many ways by communities as well as by elected officials that continue to add to the toll of structural racism and differences in how we experience yeah. lives. And not just for people of color, but also for anyone else who's living there, white people as well. Sure. So, Thank you for asking that. Yeah. So I know, you know, when we're talking about transportation and trying to tackle structural racism, if you will, I know you've started working very directly with one of our members with the California Department of Motor Vehicles um, to help them with a racial equity action plan. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the work you've uh, been doing with, with California and what they're trying to accomplish there? So uh, the California Department, uh, department is actually doing some work in one of our learning communities and they're identifying their priorities uh, for how they're going to allocate some of their time and money. Um, and that racial equity action plan, by the way, is one of the ways that they identify priorities for taking a look at their own policies and practices for how they do allocations of dollars where they do subsidies, where they might actually put in new infrastructure, so new capital investment. With any type of formalized structure and system, we already have momentum built up around how we do things the way that we do. So they're assigning points to certain uh, applications for new investment. <clears throat> Those points don't always acknowledge you know, has there been past investment? Has there been a past history of disinvestment um, based upon race? They're bringing a new level of analysis to the work that they've already done to understand why is it that when we take a look at our catchment area, we are seeing that there are disproportionalities by race in terms of transportation services and ancillary impacts. And that is uh, the work that they're doing with us. Now, this is work that requires us not only to collect data, but to begin to analyze it and disaggregate that data by race, by language spoken at home, um, by zip code. We've got some really good mapping stuff for that now. But then to not just stop at sort of the apparent, okay, we see that there are significant differences now you've got to start thinking about how you do a root cause analysis about what's contributing to the disparities that you're seeing, particularly when you see them by race. We can't do all of that work within the four walls of the agency. We are compelled to actually touch base with the people who are most significantly negatively impacted and involve them in helping us understand why that data looks the way it looks. And when we do that, that's when we begin to do more of a root cause analysis. So questions like, you know, um, uh, 
what is your distance away from a central hub? Let's say this is talking about BART or something. It's one thing to do that measurement in your office as the crow flies. It's another thing to start taking into account if someone's in a wheelchair um, and they're living in a part of the community where sidewalks have not actually been upgraded on a regular basis, so you don't have as many cutaways, um, where there are other inconveniences in terms of crossing streets, we might come to our own determination that it's only taking 12 minutes, when in fact it could be taking 32 minutes, right? And so, but we wouldn't know that unless we actually had some information that creates some insights for us about what the challenge actually is. So just like the Stanford D School um, is sort of focusing on the end user and including them in the design of processes and products, that's exactly what we're asking them to do. Um, and to really pay attention to who's being left out um, and what are the dynamics, what, what are the characteristics of the people who are left out? I hope that makes sense. And so have you successfully able to reach out to those citizens in California, the customers of the California DMV? Is that something that you're doing directly for the California DMV, or is it something that you help them behind the scenes to formulate, talk to their customers, and gather this data and, and understand? Because it's interesting in the DMV world, I think on the surface, one could uh, presume that it's it's a great equalizer, right? The, the DMV has to serve everybody. Um, generally speaking, in most jurisdictions, the DMV workforce is among the more diverse when you look at government agencies. And so is the, the, the clientele because everyone has to come through there. You know, uh, even if you're not a driver, even if you're taking, you know, the bus all the time, uh, you still probably want a state issued identity document and you're going to the DMV to, to get it. So on the surface, mm -hmm. it's the great equalizer. And yet maybe when you when you dig deeper and you look at these types of data metrics you're talking about, you realize, well, you, you might think you're the great equalizer, but really the way you're offering these services are not as uh, equally accessible as maybe you think they are. I think the quick answer to your question is <laughs> we're not doing the work on behalf of the agency. When you work with us, it's a little bit like hiring a personal trainer. Um, you want to actually achieve a level of equity, racial equity, um, that is in keeping with your commitments to the public. But you're going to be doing the work. We will work with you to understand what the work is, but we will not be able to do the work on your behalf. Is it okay for you to work with some contractors who are directly accountable to you for gathering that data? Um, and uh, keeping you on your time frame? Yes, it is. But when you're a member of GARE, and uh, California DMV is, you are also part of a broader network of agencies who are doing this work and who are sharing the challenges they're facing, who are challenging one another to make good on their commitments, and who are also sharing um, where they're seeing some breakthroughs and some promising practices which you might actually begin to think about replicating uh, or imitating 
so that you can get better results. So, you know, we could take something pretty simple. Like I know that they're keeping, they're keeping uh, track of how long is the line, right? Any particular sentence. And sometimes maybe even, you know, people, there's the informal sort of information about where to go to what place. And there's probably an app now that lets you know how long your waiting line is. But just dealing with the length of the line by giving people information about where else to go may not be dealing with the challenge of why is there a line? It's one thing, and I used to live in California years ago. So when I was living in Alameda and would go to Oakland, um, I saw that they had maybe 37 languages um, at the California DMV. Here's the challenge though. Is translation alone sufficient to create an understanding about how to do a title transfer, right? On a vehicle that somebody maybe didn't receive a title for. So there's a navigation process, right? You see what I'm talking about right now, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You you just opened up a whole, we could, that's a whole other conversation it is, we could have here for an hour. It's fantastic. Because if yeah. I am new to buying a vehicle, second generation, Title? Yep. What are you talking about? A title? You know, we there was cash. I've got a bill of sale. Mm. Oh, now you've got a clouded title. So I didn't know that I was supposed to do that, right? So is that, I mean, so that comes down to a whole new level mm. of consumer information that may have California DMV thinking about what is what more could we do to ensure that when people are in the process of transferring vehicles, buying vehicles, selling vehicles, that they're aware. Mm -hmm. We care about you. We care about the service and everything. We don't want to be a barrier. Here's what we're noticing from our data. Significantly, uh, people who are second generation, first generation, Southeast Asian or Latinx people, uh, or even in longstanding African-American community, people are think they're buying vehicles, maybe without a title. This is something we need to make more of a public awareness piece, right? So I'm just laying out for you what mm. some of the challenges can be, but how it's not enough to just say, well, people should just know that they're supposed to have a title, right? If we know that people are being disproportionately right. negatively impacted, and we as a public steward of this process are there to ensure that the public is informed and is doing safe transactions. Is there something more that we can do, right? To begin to help to mitigate that as a challenge. What could we proactively do to get them into the system uh, proactively and positively, as opposed to, you know, you didn't, I don't care that you didn't know it, and now here are the consequences, right? You know, how do you get them into the system? And that's really what in inclusion is is should really be all about. That is exactly it, Ian. That is absolutely it. And uh, it is uh, not sufficient to rely upon sort of the, I guess, time-honored, well, this is going to be a painful lesson for you. Mm -hmm. um, if we want to actually ensure that everyone has access to um, what they need in order to be successful in our society. 
And uh, that's going the extra mile on that is going to be required. And you know what? Here's the thing. There's a group of people, white people, who probably are facing the same challenge, right? So why don't we make this more apparent if we focus on those who are most significantly negatively impacted about what the challenges are facing DMV? And we're able to communicate what needs to be done to someone whose first language is not English, who may not necessarily be literate in their language or English, but we're able to make it very broadly known what the process is for you know, license plates, registering a vehicle, uh, disposing of a vehicle. I guarantee you, Ian, we're going to develop a way of doing that process that's gonna benefit everyone, mm -hmm. right? Because we're, making it work really well for those people who are most significantly negatively impacted. Mm. That's what is going to drive the innovation in this space. It's what you see happening with public libraries who have gradually begun to understand that fines don't really drive behavior around returning materials, uh, but they sure as heck will keep people out if they can't pay down their minimum fine. And who is that most significantly negatively impacted? Low wealth communities, of which there are more people of color proportionately in that category, but significant numbers of white families in that category as well, numerically. So yeah, that's what we're talking about is going beyond um, actually redefining uh, what good public service is uh, so that we are ensuring that more people are successful. Well, um, well, well, Gordon, you know, on that on that positive note, and and looking forward, that re, you know, rising tide lifts lifts all boats. Um, I feel like I've only gone to ask you a, a couple of questions, but I know we're we're running up on time, so I really want to commit to uh, continuing this conversation with you in the future. Um, I think the introduction of this discussion into the, the motor vehicle community, into the transportation community, um, is only just starting. And there are many that are eager to have more of it. Um, and so I, I think I, I see in your future some speaking invitations to some of our events and conferences to uh, come meet more of these folks that, you know, where there's one California DMV, there are there are 68 more across North America um, who, who might be interested in a conversation with you. Well, Ian, let me tell you, um, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I'm a car guy uh, and a motorcycle guy. I've paid uh, quite quite a, a bit of money for registrations and things. I'm at DMV all the time, but that's one of the places, you know, the folks who are doing the work directly with the public, um, because, you know, we also have to understand that DMV is more than just about cars, right? I mean, there's a number of, there's, I don't know what's happening uh, in California now, but there's voter registration that's taking place at the same time as you register for a license. There's a number of civic engagement pieces that are occurring, significant transactions. Some DMV offices in Minnesota actually have a passport office located next door to them. I don't know if that's happening in other areas of the country. So I uh, would love to speak with your audience more if they would love to hear more.
And uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Gordon, in the, in the meantime, will you, for folks that want to learn more about GARE and, and the program, um, tell them where, where online they might best start. The best place to start is at the GARE website, which is racialequityalliance.org. That would be the best place to start. Yes. Well, Gordon, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. I'll look forward to uh, hopefully meeting you in person in the not, not too distant future. And I really want to thank you for spending some time with us today, having this conversation. Um, it is, it's important. It's timely. It's overdue. Um, and we just couldn't be more appreciative of the time you've, you've spent with us today. Well, thank you very much, Ian. And I look forward, hopefully, to having an opportunity to speak with you again in the not too distant future. Sorry. To all of you out there, thanks for tuning in this week. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. And until next week, everybody, stay well. Thank you for joining us for Ambacast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Visit us at ambacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.